a fallout shelter somewhere under Seattle, Washington, is the show you've been waiting for. Get ready to join your hosts, John and Kenrick, as they talk comics, movies and more. Now here's Spoiler Country! Alright, welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenrick. That, that right there is Mr. Horsley. Hello. How you doing, man? Doing good. Doing good, man. Doing how's good. the How's the house? Uh, it's 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 clean. We cleaned it. It's but it's still it's still uh, we're still unpacking. <laughs> I was actually just my son Jack, who's five, was like begging me to clean the garage with him to find his toys. We so. cleaned it. Oh man, yeah. Well, I saw your your garage over my mother's birthday, <laughs> and that was yeah chaos. Yeah. Chaos. Couldn't yeah. see the floor. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it, a lot so of it's empty boxes now. in there. Those are all gone. Those yeah. are all gone. Nice. All the, all the boxes are gone. Now we're just working about getting through tubs and cleaning stuff up. Yeah. But today we have a very special guest. We do. We have, um, you know, a guy that's written some books that we've all read. And even if you haven't, don't realize it, I'm, I guarantee you've probably read a book by him. Yep. So we have Ron Mars, who has, well, he's written for DC, he's written for Marvel, and who else? Uh, he's written for Dark Horse and Image and Cross. He was one of the he's one of the guys behind CrossGen back when CrossGen was a thing. Um, you know, he wrote, he's written for Superman. He's written for, he wrote, you know, when Casey's actually, what I found out later, that was Casey's one of his, his big inspiration comics, Silver Surfer, Ron Mars was the, was the writer for that. And he's written for, you know, Batman and Green Lantern and all this. Which all iteration this of stuff. Silver Surfer did he do? He did. Um, was it the 1987? Uh, it was the volume three, uh, issues 42 through 43, then 49 and 51 through 102. The, I think that was in the late nineties. Yeah, it was well. It said it says he was part of. No, it was it was eighties, eighties and nineties because um, oh, okay. he did an, he did annuals three through seven, which was nineteen ninety five. So it was in the in early nineties, probably somewhere. Oh, in there. Okay, well, nineteen eighty seven was volume two. Yeah, yeah. So it was probably, it was probably in that series. Okay, interesting, cool. But he's got yeah, a new Kickstarter coming out. He does. He does. Well, it's 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 active right now called Dread Gods. Nice. Yeah, it's it's a hundred ninety six page hardback book. I already backed it because it looks it looks really good. Wow! But uh, K- Casey got a chance to sit down and talk with them about Dread Gods, about Silver Surfer, and about a bunch of other stuff. Cool. Well, let's let's take a listen. All right. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Spoiler Country. My name is Casey Allen, and today we're talking to Ron Mars. Ron is a uh, he's a career writer. He's been at this a while, uh, starting off with. Uh, Marvel and uh, Silver Surfer, among other things. And now he is wanting to talk about a Kickstarter project right now called Dread Gods. Ron, how are you today? I am well, Casey. Thanks for having me on. Ah, no, no problem. No problem. Uh, thanks for, for talking to us. So um, I've been looking at the, uh, the Dread Gods Kickstarter, and uh, I, this book was originally under idw correct yeah we did you know we did it as single issues through idw um which was great we have a nice uh partnership with idw that is ongoing and we like those guys a bunch um but we wanted to do sort of the um the you know the the, all the bells and whistles uh collected edition uh hardcover so we're doing the kickstarter ourselves and this will you know the, the single issues are still out there. And in fact, the single issues are even part of the Kickstarter. You can get those signed with variant covers and all oh, that stuff. Oh, that's cool. Um, but the, you know, we really wanted to uh, do an edition that, that showed off the artwork uh, oversized. So it's an 8x12 hardcover. Nice. Uh, it's got an extra 10 page story in it uh, beyond the material that's already seen print. 
Um, and it's got about 70 pages of extras in it. Um, behind the scenes, sketches, artwork from Tom Ranney and Bart Sears, a complete cover gallery with stuff from Neil Adams, Kenneth Rockefeller, Kevin McGuire, Cully Hamner, um, and a bunch of others. So this is, we, we kind of feel like this is the ultimate edition of, of this particular project. That's a whole lot of book for, um, for, for what you pay for. Oh my goodness. Yes. It's, it's, it's 200 pages, um, 200 pages, full color, um, eight by 12 hardcover. Um, so we're, you know, we're, well, I'm, I have to admit, I'm sort of a hardcover whore myself when I buy books. <laughs> uh, I want the big lavish edition, you know, the, the, my shelves have, uh, have a fairly significant collection of, you know, Hellboy library editions and art books and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so ultimately we're producing the kind of book that I would want to have on my shelf. That's awesome. I mean, you, you don't want to put out something that you wouldn't care to have in the first place. So what you're, you're really putting your money where your mouth is on this. And, uh, it's, I, I think it's going to show the, the final product is it looks like it's going to be amazing. Well, there's a bunch of, you know, there's a bunch of artwork that nobody's ever seen, um, from Bart and from Tom. And, um, I love that kind of stuff when you, you know, when you get a collected edition, that's so it's not just well here's you know here's the story and here's a few pages to fill out the you know to fill out the printing signatures and that's it so we wanted to we wanted to show off all of this cool stuff that is kind of the behind the curtain stuff when tom was doing character designs bart was um developing the characters you know creating the monsters um, there's a bunch of cool stuff that, um, that nobody's ever seen except, you know, basically me. Uh, so, and I, I don't want to just keep it to myself. So, uh, so we're, we're putting out an edition where we can get all of that stuff, um, into the, into the book and kind of give, um, kind of give a behind the scenes glimpse of how the whole thing came together and the art process and what stuff looks like in black and white, what stuff, what it looks like once the color's over it. Um, so it's, it's equally valid for people that just want to read what I think is a pretty cool story uh, or people who really want to peek behind the curtain and um, the the process junkies who want to see how the whole thing came together. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that as I get more into comics, um, as somebody who, who tries to write comics, seeing that process is it's really kind of beneficial – to me as, as a creator, but also just seeing how the sausage is made is really kind of cool sometimes. And, and seeing all the different um, paths that you were about to take and didn't, or you, just the, uh, this character sketches. I love seeing those early designs. Yeah. It gives, you know, I think it gives a sense of, of the thought process that goes into it and what was ruled out, what direction we decided to go in. And, and a lot of times, I mean, I love the the real loose stuff that we can get into the book, um, the stuff that's not finished complete pages. That's just sketches that were, you know, thrown down on a piece of paper when we were trying to figure out something, um, you know, kind of loosey-goosey stuff that's got so much life and energy to it um, because it's just done quickly and it's you're, you're trying to get an idea on paper rather than get than getting something, you know, really um, – finished and uh perfect for print um I, I i love that kind of stuff uh so so one of the nice things about you know 
being part of a publishing company and and doing some stuff on Kickstarter is you can pursue the kind of material that you love. Um, you don't you know you don't have to uh, you don't have to wait for anybody's permission. You're not waiting for uh, for another publisher to to decide whether this is the kind of project they want to pursue or you know they don't want to uh, they don't want to pay for the extra pages in the back of a book to show off this stuff. Um, when you have your own publishing concern, you can, you know, you can make decisions that are, that are spurred by what creatively works for you. Um, as well as obviously, you know, the financial concerns of, Hey, if we put this book out, are we going to lose our shirts? Yeah. Yeah. And speaking of this, this book, is this it for, for the dread gods? This is really the first chapter. This is the first complete Dread God story that kind of sets up the world, sets up the characters. Um, we would love to tell more Dread God stories maybe next year, um, but we want to get through this one first and make sure we've got a you know we've got a project that people respond to, uh, and then you know and then hopefully we can tell the next chapter next year. Cool, cool. So this is with Ominous Press, which is. Um something that you and Bart Sears run, correct? Um, yeah, it's it's me, Bart Sears, Andy Smith, and Sean Huspar is our publisher. Um, he's the CEO and kind of the, the guru behind a lot of what we're doing. Um, so it's, you know, it's very much a, you know, it's a, I say small press, but, you know, we've done a pretty decent stack of books at this point. Um, and uh, various and sundry projects. So it's, uh, it, you know, it takes up the biggest chunk of my time. I'm the editor in chief and also writing a bunch of the material. So, um, the, you know, it's, it's a lovely, it's a lovely thing to be able to do the kind of books you want. That's awesome. And, and I was reading the concept of this book and it just really cool sounding concept uh, can you go into that a little bit without, you know, spoiling the, the whole thing? Sure. It's the, the short version of of this book is is what happens when monsters in a fantasy world find out or what's what's um, I, I've said this so often I got it backwards. Uh, <laughs> what what happens when gods in a fantasy world find out they're really monsters in a post post apocalyptic landscape? Um, so, so the setup is, um, is science fiction. It's a, it's a post-apocalyptic world where most of the population plugs into a daily entertainment sort of, um, you know, bread and circuses to keep the masses, uh, occupied and quiet, uh, that shows off what are essentially these powerful Greek style gods having adventures in the bucolic paradise. Uh, the you know the the king of the gods is Zeus. His wife is Hera. Um, there are various and sundry gods that are part of uh, part of their world. So they have these you know obviously larger than life adventures. Um, they they live large. Uh, they they have great loves, great great wars, great battles, um, amazing adventures, and it keeps the population. Um, docile so as the story goes on we find out that maybe what the gods think is reality is not actually reality the gods begin to figure out that they're just puppets in a in a technological uh, in a technological feed uh, that basically they're they're monsters 
they're monsters and tanks. And um, the the main character in the real world um, is a man named Carver who's in a wheelchair. So he is in some ways um, the most fragile of all the characters. Uh-huh. Um, but he's the one who discovers the reality of what the gods are and then tries to set them free. Um, so it's it's very much a story that's told in two in two worlds, in the fantasy world and in the science fiction post-apocalyptic world. And as the story goes on, obviously those two worlds collide. And uh, what happens when those worlds collide is what the story is really about. That's awesome. That's awesome. And that's, I mean, setting you up for for a much longer series eventually. That's that's cool. Yeah, I mean, the... the um, uh, I don't. Um, uh, I, I don't. I don't see an endpoint for these stories. We have a lot of stories we'd love to tell with these characters. Um, this is just sort of the first one and, and sets up where we want to go. It's complete in and of itself, and and it also has a a, a brand new ten page story by me and Tom Ranny um, that continues the initial storyline. Um, that's only available in this volume. Um, but you know, all things being equal, we'd love to just, you know, maybe do one of these a year for, uh, for as long as they'll let us. That's awesome. So I, I can't, I really can't wait to read this book. It, it looks amazing. Um, I was, okay. So I was kind of looking into the different books that you've done over your career, which, I mean, you've been in this, uh, for what, nearly 30 years, right? Yeah, I haven't had a real job in a long time. So. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, you you started off with uh, um, in newspapers, correct? Yeah, I, I you know I ended up working at a daily newspaper when I was in college. Um, when I was, I think in my, I think the summer between my freshman and sophomore years, I got through through my college. I got a, I got a job at the local daily newspaper, and um, I was a sports writer. I I, I did um, did local sports writing for two three years and then eventually moved over to be the editor of the entertainment section um, once I had graduated from college and um, that was really my sort of my base of knowledge for writing um, that's where I got daily practice at uh, you know producing copy and and writing on deadline taking a on a a finite amount amount of information and putting it in a finite uh, space. So journalism was was terrific training to be a comic writer. Um, and I'm, I'm sure you learned how to cut the fat too. For well, yeah, I mean, you, you uh, and particularly when you're doing single issue monthly comics, you have a finite amount of space, so you got to, you know, you don't have pages and pages to dawdle. Um, you got to make it so count. I, I think I, I didn't realize it at the time, but the journalism stuff was was prepping me for how to approach comics. Um, so I, you know, I did that for a few years and then eventually, uh, Jim Starlin took me by the hand and led me into Marvel and, and my comic career started when I was, I don't know, 23 or 24. So that's awesome. Uh, I've been, I've been doing it. Uh, I guess actually, actually when I was 23, because I've been doing it almost 30 years. Holy smokes. That's crazy. And I, I, I want to get into that if that's okay, but you made yeah, me absolutely. think of something. Um, you you have a you have several books that are very much based upon real events, real people, um, uh, 
you did a book about samurai. You did a book about um, uh, World War II uh, pilots. Um, how do you? How are you able to get all of that information into the story without just drowning in the history of it all? Um, okay. You know, mostly, honestly, you just make stuff up because <laughs> that's the job. Um, you know, I, I've, and I've been asked that before, like how much how much research do you do? How much research is too much? And my answer is always the same. It's that I, you know, you have to do enough research so that everybody's fooled into thinking you know what you're talking about. Um, you, you have to, um, there has to be a veneer of truth to it. There has to be a veneer of reality to it. Um, so, and, and every, you know, every writer makes, um, every writer makes his or her own decision in terms of what, what that veneer is, how much that reality you have to do. Um, I think, you know, I always, I always want to do enough research that it, it feels real, but not so much that you're, you're forcing every, you know, every stray fact that you found into the story somewhere to show people that you did your research. Um, first and foremost, you're there to tell a story. Um, and you're there to tell a story that pulls in the reader and makes them believe in the story. So you have to have enough details and enough veracity to make the reader believe it, but you don't want so much accumulation of detail and minutia that the story becomes lost in the, uh, in, in the fact checking. Yeah. Yeah. That's, have you, have you struggled with that or is that something you had to figure out as it, as you came along or did you just kind of take to it like, like a, like a duck to water? Um, I think part of it was, was honestly came from just what journalism ingrained in me and that, you know, you, you always lead with the most important stuff. Um, and, and if some, the stuff that gets sort of put down towards the bottom of the story is less important so that if it gets cut, if it winds up on the editing room floor, you're not missing large chunks of what's important. So, um, I think, um, I, you know, I think I, I approach things with that mindset anyway. Um, but a lot of times I think it's just, you know, there's always, there's always some little bit that helps you sell your story to the audience that helps the audience accept the reality of what you're telling them. And it's, and it's usually some, some minor, but very human detail. Um, you want the audience to be able to see themselves in your story in some way, shape or form. And if you can, you can find that detail, that you know whether you're if your story is about a uh, a samurai in um, in the the court of uh, Louis the Fourteenth, that's obviously something that nobody has firsthand experience <laughs> with. But but every but you know the samurai story is a love story. It's about the samurai um, finding his his lover who has been kidnapped and taken away. That's what the story is about. It's not about the, you know, it's not about the sword fights. It's not about the, the details of what Versailles looked like. All that stuff is great, but it's it's window dressing for what the story is really about, which is this love story, and everybody can relate to that. Everybody relates to the characters. So I think it, you know, it it all comes, it all comes from believable characters. If if the audience believes in and cares about your characters, 
then the details that you accumulate around them just help sell the whole package. Quick question. How much did your relationship with your artist suffer during the Rusai storyline <laughs> after drowning um, in all of that uh, architecture? Um, well, you know, so so the artist on <laughs> Samurai Heaven and Earth from Dark Horse is uh, Luke Ross, who was my uh, my Brazilian brother from another mother. Um, and uh, I warned him. I said, look, man. <laughs> Look, man, this is gonna. This is this scene takes place in Versailles Hall of Mirrors, and it's gonna really suck. And he's like, "Okay, let's do it." So you know, so it's always good to talk to your artist beforehand. You know, before you before you you spring it on them, um, and say, "Is this is this okay? Is this you know if if you if you absolutely one hundred percent don't want to draw this, we'll work around it." Um, but I think it's it's always better to, um, you know, this is a collaborative process. It's always better to say, hey, this is this is what what's coming up here. Is are you up for that? And the vast majority of the time, the answer is yes. You know, the answer is let's you know bring it on. Let's you know let's do something that's really going to knock knock the reader's eyes out of their heads because that is the nature of an artist. You want to show off. You want to you want to you know do that scene better than anybody else could. Um, so when we did the, the stuff in Versailles, um, you know, Luke just, Luke just made it amazing. Um, that, um, uh, we want to, um, we want to put, um, you know, we want to put those things in front of the audience and have the audience ooh and ah, because this is a visual medium. So, I mean, I, I tell any prospective writer, look, you're only as good as the artist you're working with. Uh, if you write a, you know, if you write a genius script and they, they hand it to some hack artist, you have a, you have a lousy story at the end of the day. Um, and the other side of that coin is if, if you write a pretty mediocre script and they hand it to a genius like Lou Gross, your story is going to be really good at the end of the day. Uh, and you're going to, and, and frankly, you're going to get the credit for it. Uh, so, um, you know, advice number one to anybody who wants to write comics, work, work with the best artists you can work with every time. That's awesome. Yeah. I, um, so I run a group called the comic jam. We do uh, web comics every week. And, um, I was talking to my artist one time and, and just said, you know, I feel kind of guilty because this script I wrote on the toilet on my phone and here you are <laughs> doing this, you know, several hours on a page, and it's amazing. So, um, yeah, that that uh, writer artist relationship is very important. Well, the you know the division of labor is not fair. Um, the fact that artists don't get as much credit as they should is not fair uh, by any means. Um, artists, uh, you know, the 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 sort of writer centric medium we've developed into is certainly not the way. Um, not the way we should be doing this. And hopefully the, the pendulum swings back in the other direction. Um, but ultimately, you know, a lot of the, the, the success or failure of a story is to great extent dependent on what the artist does. If, you know, if Dave Gibbons isn't the guy drawing Watchmen, Watchmen is probably not what it is. Um, if, um, you know, if, if, you know, David Mazzucchelli not drawing Batman year one, or uh, Daredevil Born Again, 
Um, they're still probably really good stories because Frank Miller wrote them, but um, they are not the all-time classics that they are. Um, the the writer-artist relationship has to be this um, this kind of alchemy that that you you wind up with something um, greater than either of them could produce on their own. Yeah, and and going back to um, some of the stuff we were talking about earlier. The, okay, so the first book I ever read where you were a writer on it was the Dynamo City run uh, that you did with Starlin and uh, I, I believe it was Ron Lim. Oh yeah, that was that was some of my first stuff. And that so it was eighty seven. So I was maybe a, a bit young to to be reading that book because I was about six. <laughs> but it was the first time I ever read a story, uh, especially the the, the part where. Um, where Silver Surfer basically got screwed over by the the show, and I ne- I didn't understand that that the hero could be treated unfairly until that, and it blew my mind as a kid. I was like, "Holy crap!" And then you know the the next up ep- the next issue, which uh, which you wrote um, with Starlin, uh, it kind of changed things up a little bit, and uh, um, I, that was such a good run for me as, as you know a young person getting into that book well that, that was you know that stuff was my on the job training that was you know that was was not the first I think that was maybe the first stuff that came out but it wasn't the first stuff that I wrote um, the first thing that I wrote was <clears throat> was um, Silver Surfer Annual 3 I think was the first one um, so, so Jim asked me, Jim asked me if I wanted to write comic cause we were buddies already. I had, I had copy edited his, his first prose novel for him. Um, and he liked what I did suggested that I think about writing comics, you know, and he said, well, do you ever, you know, do you ever think about writing comics? It's a good way to put food on the table, which, you know, is like somebody asking you if you want to play center field for the Yankees. That's, you know, that's, that's, of course, that's a thing you think about, but it, <laughs> It's not a thing that actually happens. Um, so I said yes. And he's like, oh, okay. Um, um, and, uh, you know, he showed me the showed me the format, uh, gave me the story for, for the annual, and gave me the story for, you know, the issues we just talked about. And I actually wrote the scripts and with, you know, with very minimal sort of uh, uh, ex- uh, text uh, um, editing and uh, ghosting on Jim's part, uh, and I've been working ever since. Honestly, um, so I got you know I got showed the ropes. I, w- I was fortunate enough to have um, somebody like Jim Starlin vouch for me, and fortunate enough to be coming into comics when there was a boom time where uh, you know everything was selling just crazy numbers because of the speculation market and. Um, they, they needed warm bodies to do the work, and I was a warm body. Uh, so I very much learned how to do the job while I was doing the job um, and co-wrote my first few things with Jim and then did, uh, you know, odds and ends on, you know, some backup stories and a uh, stack of what-if issues because those were, you know, kind of proving grounds for, for aspiring creators and then when Jim left the Monthly Surfer book to do Infinity Gauntlet, um, uh, I'm sure with much arm twisting on his part, uh, they handed the book to me. And 
that you stayed on that book for a while. So, it, you know, at, after a while, it, it's no longer Jim twisting their arm. It's, it's them looking at your work and going, oh, okay, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, thankfully, it was, thankfully it was selling. You know, the, the uh, uh, you know, the, the, in, that, in that era, stuff was selling like gangbusters, and Surfer was doing great. Obviously, Jim had established the book as kind of a must-read thing. And when I, so when I took it over, the book was selling like 300,000 copies a month. Um, uh, which was not, you know, which was a really great number, but it was not, you know, was not a crazy number in that era. Um, I remember when I, when I took over the books, Surfer was selling more than Superman, which I just thought was, that's crazy, was was crazy (laughs) and wrong in every, in every way, shape and form. Um, and obviously the, you know, the sales didn't stay there. Um, uh, you know, industry wide, the, the sales eventually, eventually, uh, tumbled down and then there was a, you know, the bottom kind of fell out of the speculate speculator market. But for a while, you know, comics just sold crazy numbers. And I was very fortunate to, to be able to step into the business at that point. Was and there, they, and oh. they haven't been able to get rid of me since. <laughs> was there ever any, um, any weirdness with you being, being a relatively new writer being on silver surfer? Because I, from what I understand, Stan was, really protective of that character um for a, for a long time um no there wasn't there was i mean obviously stan was even at that point stan was out in california and not uh having a whole lot to do with the books editorially at all you know he was more you know he was he was his role was more to um cut movie deals and you know exploit the marvel library and other and other media um but I never, you know, I never got any any pushback or anything like that. I, uh, you know, and I think I, I think I've still written more surfer issues than anybody else. Um, but I did get to meet I did get to meet Stan at one of the Marvel parties, and um, he, you know, whether he actually knew who I was or just was really good at pretending that I, he knew who I was, but he, you know, he said complimentary things about my surfer and and said that it was, you know. It's, you know, the, the character that's, that's near and dear to him. And, um, you know, I felt like I had, uh, I had gotten the seal of approval from, you know, from the guy. That's awesome. That's, that's gotta be pretty gratifying. Do, do you keep up with those books that after you've left them? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's, 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 a uh, you know, I'm, look, I'm a, I'm a fan of this stuff just like anybody else. So, if there's a good creative team that, that clicks with me, I'll I'll read the book. And if it's a creative team that I'm not interested in, I won't. Um, same for you know, so same for Surfer, same for Green Lantern. You know, if the stuff's you know if the stuff's up my alley, I'm a reader like everybody else. But I don't I don't go out of my way to keep up with books that I've written previously, um, just because I've written it. Yeah, yeah, it. it- so there's not like a huge attachment to the character once you're done with it. No, not really. I mean, there's obviously I, I, I have a I have a fondness for for Surfer and for certainly my Green Lantern more so than other characters because I, I spent years with them. You know, you you, you end up kind of with a with a daily um, relationship with those characters because you're working on them all the time um, for years. Um so there, there's definitely a, a, a fondness and a familiarity. Um, 
but you ultimately know that it's not yours. Like even Kyle Rayner, who I created with Daryl Banks for DC, it's not our character. It's DC's character, and they, they do what they want with him. Um, but certainly I feel much more of an attachment to, to Kyle than I do for Hal Jordan or Jon Stewart or any, any other, other Green Lanterns um, because we, we brought him into the world. And I've always, I've always been a fan of his character design. I always thought you guys nailed that. Um, well, it, it's not, it's, it's, uh, uh, that's all Daryl. Uh, de- the costume was definitely, um, um, was definitely Daryl's design. Um, it was ultimately put together from a couple different character designs that, that Daryl had. He, he did a whole series of designs for Kyle. And I, I assume I still have, that was in the, the halcyon days of, of faxes getting sent back and forth. <laughs> um, sure you I, miss I, those, I, huh? I, I assume I still have those those um, faxes somewhere in a in a filing cabinet, um, but you know Daryl came up with a bunch of different designs, so we took you know, we took the things that we liked from each and kind of put to, put it together into a, a more cohesive design. And um, you know I'm glad Kyle seems to be back in his original costume now, which is really cool. Um, I think that's the one that the readers who are a fan of the character want to see. And obviously that's the one that's, uh, you know, dearest to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. And that was such a, that was such a cool run that you did. I mean, you, you were on that book for quite a while after, just like you were on surfer, you were on that book for a while and, uh, a lot of changes on that book did. So once Rainer became the, the new lantern, like, did you have any, like, just crazy pit in the pit in your stomach feeling right before that went out or were you like, just, okay, here's, it is what it is. Let's do this. Um, yeah, I didn't get, I didn't get too, um, uh, I didn't get too bent out of shape about it. Uh, A part of it was that we, or I guess really me, uh, Daryl was already on the book. I got the offer to take over the book fairly late in the game. Um, because they had had the previous team actually got a, got a stab at issues 48, 49 and 50. And then DC decided they didn't like what, um, didn't like what they had, uh, and offered the book to me with the idea of, all right, we're going to bring in, bring in a new green lantern to be the star of the book. Um, so once I said, yes, we, we were off and running and I had to write issues 48, 49 and 50 all at the same time. Because now we were late. Now the you know now the solicits had already gone out. Those had to be canceled, um, and a new new issues had to be solicited. So um, I had to write a chunk of forty eight, a chunk of forty nine, and then a chunk of fifty to get the three respective artists working, and then go back and finish off each issue. Oh wow, that sounds like uh, sounds like a, a a big thing to take on. Well, it's. I can't. You know, sometimes that's sometimes that's the job. Uh, sometimes it's necessary to, you know, you write issues out of order. You write, you know, you write. Uh, well, that that happened fairly often on Green Lantern anyway, because we had essentially two two regular art teams. We had Daryl, and then um, fairly fairly soon into our run, um, we brought in Paul Pelletier to be sort of the Daryl was the A guy. Paul was the B guy. Didn't mean one was better than the other, but we were, we were keeping both of them working at the, 
at the same time so that we could get issues out on time. Um, uh, Daryl was like a four page a week guy in terms of what he produced at that time. And, um, four pages a week is not quite a monthly book. So, um, so rather than having to constantly be racing the deadline train and filling in at the last minute, we came up with a, we came up with a schedule where, where it was my job to keep both Daryl and Paul Pelletier and then Daryl and Jeff Johnson um, working at the same time. And sometimes that meant that, you know, I do, I'd write issue 62 and 63 for Daryl and then skip ahead and write issue 66 for, for Paul so that they both had work in front of them at all times. I'm assuming that also comes with a very kick-ass editor that can keep on top of all that stuff too. Um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I was the one that actually said, look, let's, let's go get another regular penciler. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, uh, and also because, you know, the, the book was successful enough that there were, um, we knew there would be multiple, you know, it wasn't just going to be 12 issues a year. There was going to be an annual and specials and a mini series. And there, there was enough, there were, there were enough pages that needed to be drawn that we could keep two, two artists busy year round. Um, so that's what we did. And I, and I, I wanted to have another regular artist. So that we weren't constantly looking for somebody that didn't have didn't have a gig that day, um, because it, you know when you when you approach things editorially in that fashion, you just sort of are in the in the position of taking what you can get. Um, yeah. And I have I wanted to I wanted to know who I was writing for, and and be even if it was, it, you know even if logistically it was a little more difficult on me, I preferred that we do it that way so that. Um, the book was going to be consistent. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the biggest thing is having consistency. Did you have the same inker uh, on both of those art teams, or or did you? Uh... Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, uh, more often than not, uh, we did have the same inker because obviously, inkers are working uh, working faster than pencilers um, because of the nature of the job. So we generally had um, first was Romeo Tangal, and then it was Terry Austin. Um, for a good chunk of the run. So um, we generally had the same inker, but once in a while, you know, we had had to have somebody else come in and pinch hit on the inks too. That's awesome. Okay. So um, I, have a, I have a few other questions um, concerning um, just writing in general. So what aspect of writing comics are unique or different compared to when you write prose? This is actually a question from... Um, one of my uh, collaborators in the comic jam. Hmm. Uh, well, I, you know, I guess the main thing I would say is I have I have the best job in the world. This is like the coolest thing because I can't draw to save my life, right? I I have always been a fan of art. I, you know, as a teenager, I was like, oh my god, Frank Frazetta, he strides the cosmos like a god. Um, you know, so I was into all of that stuff. I've always loved art. I've always loved artwork. Um, when I was a comic reader as a kid, I was always drawn to certain artists, but I have no facility to do that myself. I just, it's, it's not, um, it's not a skill I possess. Uh, no, have, no matter how much practice I was not going to possess it. I mean, my, my kids all draw really well. Uh, so somehow like my generation got skipped, but they all got the, you know, being able to draw a gene. So, um, 
not being able to draw and loving art, I have the next best job because I get to come up with this stuff and I see it in my head. I can see the pages in my head and describe them. And then somebody far more talented than I gets a hold of the script and turns it into a real thing. So the, you know, the, the, the real, um, the real allure of comics to me is always the visual. You know, your, your job as a writer is to write the most visual story and, and the, the coolest looking page that you can come up with. Um, prose is uh prose is easier frankly you know prose you don't have to you know you don't have to come up with the visuals you're just you know you're just writing um you're writing and you you decide how much or how little uh description you have in the in the book and 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 i mean honestly my my first intention when i was in elementary school was to be um uh, was to be a prose writer. I wanted to, you know, grow up to be Edgar Rice Burroughs or Robert E. Howard. Um, you know, hopefully without the, the suicide aspect of Robert E. Howard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, there's also a lot of other things. <laughs> um, but, um, but you know, I, I ended up veering off into comics and I, and I would still like to, you know, I'd, I'd like to get some prose novels written. Um, it's just, um, uh, it's just, a you know, there's always comic work in front of me, which is not a complaint at all. Um, but you, do, you, you know, you have to make time to do that other kind of writing. And, and hopefully in the next year or two, I will. I would love to get a novel out there. Um, but there's only so many hours in the day. Yeah. Is it hard to transition from that mindset of, of writing for a page? Um, no, not really. It's all it's – all, story structure. Um, I, I think writing prose is a little bit more freeing because you're not, um, you're not doing page by page and panel by panel. Um, it, it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot more free form. Uh, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a script format that I, that I use. It's not, you know, there's no universal script form in comics, but there's a script format that I use in comics and, and, um, while it's, you know, utterly enjoyable, I, I, and I love, I was, you know, sitting here uh, today and even yesterday um, writing, you know, writing a, actually writing a script for the European market, um, uh, a, a original graphic novel that's, you know, just going to be one big book. And I just thought, man, I love doing this. This is just the coolest thing. When I sit down and envision a scene and sort of try to figure out how it would look best on the page and suggest that to the artist. Um, but by the same token, you, you are following that format. When you write prose, you can just do whatever you want. Um, it's, it's, it's a little more freeing. Plus the, the prose, um, when I write prose, people read the prose people. It's a direct connection between me and the reader. When I write a script for a comic, nobody reads my script except the editor and the artist. Um, so all the panel description and all the stuff that I that I give to the artist in the script is read by like maybe three people in the world. Um, so so ultimately, like a, the a vast majority of what the, of the words that I have written in my life have been read by like three people. You know, the the editor, the artist, the letterer. Um, obviously, people read the story that I wrote, and they read the balloons that I put on the page, and you know the words that are in the balloons and all that, but. That's, you know, that's the lesser half of, of writing a comic script. There's more, uh, there's, 
there are, there's more words, there's more effort in the, in the panel description than there is in the dialogue because you have to be fairly succinct with your dialogue. Um, so, so writing a, writing a comic script is kind of, you know, that's part of the process to get to the finished product, writing prose, what you write is the finished product. Awesome. And do you, okay. Do you mind if I ask you about Marvel versus DC? Yeah, please do. <laughs> because that was okay. So that was uh, like 96, 98, something like that. That was the, when I was really first getting into comic books, just hardcore. And I ate those books up. How, how hard was it to write with, you know, in, in that sandbox, basically two different sandboxes with their big characters on, on both sides. And, um, I'm sure editorial was just on your back the whole time, right? You know, honestly, no, it was, it, you know, it, it was a big popcorn spectacle, um, and, and really resulted from that market crash, uh, in the comics market with, you know, with stores be, you know, over ordering, being stuck with product they couldn't move. Um, Marvel versus DC was a project put together to, um, obviously to sell copies, but also to pump money into the direct market to keep stores open. Um, okay. so there was, there was a sense of, of we're, you know, we're serving a greater good here in terms of, of getting this, um, getting this, um, this story out. Uh, and obviously we, you know, we had, a, we had a ball doing the story. It was, you know, just, it's the, it's literally the story I wanted to write since I was 10 years old. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And I got a chance to do it. Um, but editorial was basically told, look, you know, hands off. This is, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't lose the forest for the trees here. Um, we want a fun project where characters get to interact and we get to see Batman fight Captain America and Superman fight the Hulk and, you know, understand that that's the spirit in which we want to do this thing. Don't, don't get caught up in the minutia of continuity and all that stuff. And, um, and all the way through editorial on, on both staffs, uh, at, at both companies was great. They just kind of let us do what we wanted to do. And, and I think, you know, I feel like, you know, Peter, David and I were fairly well seasoned writers at that point that knew what we were doing. And we, you know, you understand which lines you don't cross and, you know, if you if you write your script so that you're not going to give an editor anything to object to, there's no problem. Um, so so ultimately, the the editorial process was was really pretty smooth all the way through. Um, thanks in large part to to the editors that were supervising at each at each company, and that was Mike Carlin at DC and Mark Grunewald at Marvel, and they were really our 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 shepherds for the whole thing, and and kept the you know, kept the process moving. And to be such a, you know, a one-off thing, people still love those characters. The, uh, from the Amalgam universe. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Um, the Amalgam universe. Yeah. Yes. That, was, that was the big, you know, that was the big surprise. That was the one that nobody expected. Um, and, you know, and I can remember, uh, our initial meeting for the project after, um, you know, Mike Carlin had called me and offered me the project. And obviously I said, yes, cause who wouldn't, um, we met at Mark Grunewald's apartment, uh, in Manhattan, um, 110th street or something like that. Uh, 
we didn't even meet at the Marvel or DC offices because nobody uh, we didn't want word getting out uh, that this was going to this was going to happen. So we met at Mark's office and then went and had lunch at a Mexican restaurant around the corner from his apartment in Manhattan. Um, and it was, you know, it was kept pretty quiet for a while with just, just us working on it. Um, and I can remember when, when Mark and Mike described the thing to us, we were, you know, there was, look, the, 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 the idea for the story was, uh, Marvel and DC are going to fight like, like that's the story. Um, and all of the rest of the stuff with the, you know, uh, with how the details of how it came together and the two universes, all, we worked all that out in the room. But then we, you know, then they told us, okay, what's going to happen between issues three and four, so that we have enough time to um, to get the the readers' votes as to who should win the fights, um, to give us a, a month buffer so that we get the the books printed, uh, the the issue fours printed, so that we or issue three printed. Yeah, I guess issue three, and then we had the 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 uh, issue issue the month gap for the amalgam books. That was you know that was like the other shoe dropping, and I can remember being in the room at the time when Mike and Mark told us this, and not really believing that. You know, like I thought they were pulling <laughs> my leg that oh we're gonna you know we're gonna do a you know we're gonna do a a, a month of of books you know smushing the Marvel and DC characters together, and you know I can remember thinking what are you nuts? We're not doing that. Just because I figured from the legal standpoint, this would never be allowed to happen. Oh yeah. It's, it's um, the who framed Roger rabbits of, of comic books. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so they said, no, we're, you know, we're really doing it and everybody signed off on it already. And they, they went down the list of, of prospective titles that they had. Cause they had, they had figured this out already. They, between Mike and Mark, uh, who are, you know, two of the biggest comic fans, in the world besides being, you know, really wonderful editors. Um, you know, they, they had figured out between the two of them, like which, which characters were going to get smushed together, you know, Captain America and Superman and super soldier and Wolverine and Batman and dark claw. Um, so you know, they went down the list and all of this stuff was just kind of magical to, you know, to hear about it. And when they got to, when they got to Dr. Strange fate, I was like, well, well, look, if I can't do that book, I'm walking out of here right now. <laughs> um, so they said, okay, you can do that one. You know, that's, and that was, you know, that was how it went. That was, you know, that was the only discussion of it. And, and they all looked so cool too. They, um, the characters designs were, were, were very solid and, uh, the stories were just fun. It was a big punch em up. So who doesn't love that? Um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was fun, you know. I think more than anything, it was just fun. And I think that the real beauty of the Algam books was the fact that um, we were supposed to act like these books had been printed forever. Like like Doctor Strange Fate number one wasn't really Doctor Strange Fate number one. It was Doctor Strange Fate number 267. Yeah. Um, and that there was a whole history of this universe and these characters together. And that we were just... We were just telling the next issue, so we we approached it with that sort of um, nudge, nudge, wink, wink of of well, you know, and, and some of the books even had like editor's notes to you know to see other books or previous issues that obviously didn't exist and would never exist. But it was just the you know it was just the it was the fun aspect of 
of kind of, you know, th- these love letters to, to both universes. And I bought every single one of those off the spinner rack when I was a kid. They, they were super fun. Yeah, it was, it was, um, you know, they, they picked great teams, uh, both artistically and, and, uh, writer wise. And, and it, everybody just really leaned into the material, uh, a hundred percent had a great deal of fun. Um, I think, I honestly think the most, the most editorial pushback I had on the whole project was for Dr. Strangefate because I really wanted, um, the guy under the Strangefate mask to be, to be Charles Xavier. Um, and, and Marvel, Marvel refused to sign off on that for quite a while. We were actually, you know, fairly deep into the book, um, before Marvel eventually agreed that, that that could be Xavier because they didn't, you know, he, he wasn't appearing anywhere else. But I, you know, uh, that's one of the reasons that the reveal of who Dr. Strangefate actually is, is on the last page of the book. That's awesome. And, and, and actually the, um, I'm, I'm looking at the original art to that page cause it hangs <laughs> on my office. That's, that's pretty amazing. That That's a pretty good perk. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, uh, uh, Doctor Strange Bay was truthfully the, the only time I've ever had stage fright, kind of writing a book because I was writing for Garcia Lopez, and um, you know who to me is one of the all-time geniuses of the medium. Oh yeah, uh, and uh, and I kind of felt like, oh man, I, I kind of sat on the couch in my office for about two weeks worrying about writing for Garcia Lopez because. <laughs> You know, it was Garcia Lopez. I had to. I had to bring my A game. I had to. You know, I had to be worthy of of, of the Grand Master. I, I I needed him to to think fondly of me, not get the script and um, uh, and you know toss it toss it to to the side and think I was unworthy. Um, so I, I wrestled with the story and how to start it. And, you know, everything for about two weeks until my editor. You know, he was kind of kind of up my ass for the story. He's like, Hey, you know, Jose's got to, Jose's got to start and Kevin Nolan's going to, you know, Kevin Nolan's waiting on pages to ink and you got to get going. And I, you know, I kept giving him excuses and it finally dawned on me one day that, that I could, I could write the worst piece of crap ever. And Garcia Lopez and Kevin Nolan were going to draw it. So I was going to look like a genius no matter what happened. And, <laughs> Either and so way you're in the clear. Was, that realization, that sort of freeing moment of, oh, it's okay. It's going to, you know, it, it's going to look amazing and that's all people care about, um, really kind of freed me up to just sit down and write the story. And I think I wrote the story in like two days after that. That's awesome. So uh, before we before we let you go, I want to go right back to uh, Dread Gods, the um, art book graphic novel that you have right now on Kickstarter. It's uh, Dread Gods sci-fi fantasy graphic novel art book. Um, you have an amazing team behind you on this and, uh, do you have anything else to say about, uh, about this book to, to our listeners? Um, it's really, you know, it's a creator owned book. It's, 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 uh, it's from ominous press, which is owned by me and Bart and Sean and Andy. And, um, you know, it, this project was, was very much. You know, I always give the example of, of, you know, kids putting on a show in their backyard and, you know, dad builds the sets and mom makes the costumes and they, you just do this thing with your friends. 
because you want to do it, because because you just have the desire to make something. Um, to a great extent, that's what Dread Gods was like. Um, Bart's idea, my script, Tom's artwork. Um, we've all been friends for years. And um, one of the beauties of this business is you can work f- with your friends. You can... Um, you can get together a, a fairly small group of people. Um, you know, comics are are very much a, a, a DIY kind of affair. Um, you don't need a huge crew like you do for movie or TV. You can just grab four or five people or even do the whole thing yourself and and make your thing. Um, that's still one of the that's one of the reasons I still work in comics is because I love that 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 small group you can put together and then just take your, take your stuff right to, you know, right to the reader. Um, this dread gods turned out exactly like we wanted it to turn out. There, there's no, no editorial interference. There's no, um, there are no, um, uh, there's no, um, we didn't settle for anything. We didn't, we didn't say, Oh, you know, uh, you know, we're, we're running a little, late on schedule we have to bring in another artist to finish issue three you know everything's exactly like we wanted it to be and that's that's the real beauty of creator own books um i actually tweeted this the other day is that like the, the the i think it's so cool that um robert kirkman and his collaborators got to end the walking dead exactly like they wanted to end it oh yeah there yeah. was you know there was nobody else involved in, in terms of, well, can't you, you know, let's do a mini series. Let's, let's, you know, let's try to get to issue two fifty cause we can make more money. It's, you know, it's, that's what a creator own book is. You do what you want in the way that you want it. And dread gods is certainly, um, right along those lines. This is the story we wanted to tell the way we wanted to tell it with the people we wanted to work with. And now we're getting able, we're, we're, we're getting the chance to do it. Um, in the format that we really want to, do. Um, you know, oversized hardcover, bunch of extra pages. This is this is exactly how we want to show off this story. Oh yeah, and it's it's going to be a beautiful looking book, and um, that on the inside. Oh my gosh, that art! You, your art team is just hitting on all cylinders. Well, we you know it, this is this is Tom Ranny um, inking himself, which. Um, which is a big, um, which is a big draw. Tom hasn't had a chance to ink himself that much. Um, this is one of the first times he's, he was able to do that and have the time to do it properly. Um, and uh, you know, there's a there's a spread in the first issue that is, um, I think, one of the best things Tom's ever drawn, which is this huge Hydra monster coming up out of the ground and confronting. Zeus and Hera, and you know that's it's one of one of my favorite images ever from anything in my career. It's just um, you know, like I said before, I you know I'm a huge art fan, but I can't draw to save my life. When you work with an artist like Tom and he brings to life the stuff that's in your head, that's a priceless moment. You know, like there's no there's there's no moment in comics for me that's better than when you start getting pages in your inbox from your story. Oh um, yeah. Yeah. From the artist you're working. Um, that's, that's still that one of the reasons I'm still doing it 30 years later is, is that, um, that magic of, of what the artist has turned your notion into the stuff, the stuff that existed only in your head until somebody 
like I said, far more talented, puts it down on paper, <laughs> is just the best thing in the world. You, you, you might say, as say, keeping with the theme, Herculean task. It is a, it is a Herculean. <laughs> that's a Herculean reward, is what it really is. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, for talking with us about Dread Gods and and your time with Silver Surfer and uh, the uh, Marvel versus DC. And all that other stuff, thank you again for, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. I don't want to take up too much of your day because it's Friday, man. Oh, man, they're all just days that end in Y when you're in comics. <laughs> well, it, thank you again, and and I'm really looking forward to seeing this book. So uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll end right here. Um, have a good weekend, and I hope you enjoyed the fourth. I didn't even get to talk to you about that. Um, honestly, my fourth – uh, was spent um, was a twelve hour day sitting at my desk finishing a graphic novel. Uh, that is, <laughs> that's you know that's the other side of of the you know of the freelancer reality is man some days some days whether it's a holiday or not you got to sit down and do your work. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But you know I, I love that I work at home. I love that my my commute is is down the stairs into my office that you know looks out on a backyard. Um, it's all good, but the other side of that is, uh, if you work at home, you're always at work. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I, um, I had moonshine yesterday and, uh, it, it probably could have peeled the paint off your car. Well, um, <laughs> I'm not saying that, I'm not saying there's, there's no drinking while I'm in the office. I, I, didn't, I didn't make that claim, uh, but it, that usually gets saved until later in the day. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yeah have so many pages you can reward yourself with some scotch or something like that huh. seems like a pretty actually, there's actually a, a there's actually a bottle of rye waiting for me from uh, albany distillery which i uh I, I met the owner of and he was kind enough to uh to lavish me with a with a bottle of their of their locally made rye um so um yeah that's 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 probably for a little later tonight so yet another reason i need to get into writing comics professionally Free booze. I'm, I'm, I never say no. <laughs> well, well, Ron, thank you again. And it, it's been an immense pleasure talking to you, man. No problem, Casey. Uh, it was a pleasure. Let's do it again. Ah, same here. Thanks. All right. Well, that was cool. That was cool, man. I, I, uh, I was trying my best to be on the interview with Casey, uh, but it just, the time differences and, and work and stuff just didn't work out. But Casey does a great job. He, well, I don't know if people have noticed, but. He's basically become our permanent interview guy, <laughs> right? It's so he gets to meet so all easy. the cool people. <laughs> it's so easy to go, "Hey, Casey, talk to this person." And he has time. And he's like, "Okay," and he does it. And he sends me the file. Then we do an intro outro, and it's great because, like, right now, time is so precious for yeah. like between work and school and and all this other stuff. Yeah. Well, we hope you guys enjoyed listening to Ron Mars and Casey Allen talk about Dread Gods and and all the back stuff that. Ron has done in the past because honestly, it was shocking to hear all the stuff that he did do because I didn't realize it. Yeah, yeah, and he's if you have if you don't follow him on Twitter, follow him on Twitter. He he posts some some gems out there. It's, it's pretty he's a pretty cool guy. And as always, if you can go out to Kickstarter, check out Dread Gods. The link will be in our show notes. And if you like what you see and you like the, what you heard, you know, give him a back. And if you can't afford that back, share it out. It does help.
yeah, the sharing helps more than you realize and, and definitely get out there and share it and back in. It's, uh, it's going to be cool. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've become a big fan of hardcover comics recently. I don't know why. I just, I love them. <laughs> Cause it make you feel like you're reading an actual book. Kind of, kind of, it kind of makes you feel validated. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Validation with hardcover. All right. All right. <laughs> All right, guys, we are out of here. Don't forget, we're Spore of the Country. We're heard everywhere podcasts are heard. And, of course, we're basically on all the social medias, well, all the social medias I know about. And if there's one that you know about that we're not on, let us know. Yeah, we're not, we, won't, we won't say that we'll actually sign up and be on it, but let, let, let us know about it because we might care. We might not. I don't know. Depends. <laughs> it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work doing social media. So it is I'm a lot old. of work to do social media. <laughs> we just, you know, we like to do a single post and have it go everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> automation baby automation yeah um, if you want to give us a call you can call us a voicemail at 707-656-2080 707-656-2080 you can email us at spoilercountry at gmail.com and please 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 check out our website scpod.net where we have movie reviews comic reviews from David coming out he's doing about one or two a week right now we got awesome posts from Jay Roach we got all of our podcast episodes and more they're free to find on it at scpod.net yeah scpod alright guys don't forget open the mic read more. Casey, how are you? Hello. Hey, man, how are you? Can you hear me? Hello, Ron? Yeah, I'm here. Weird. No. Can you hear me? Nuts. Okay. Um, uh, let's hang up. Well, let me uh, let me see what's going on here. I'm sorry for wasting your time, man. Uh, no. Uh, Audio settings. That'll work.
Hello? Hey, you got me now? Nuts. Okay. I can't hear you. Let me uh, let me see if I can get a different pair of headphones or something. I'm very sorry. I'm going to hang up and uh, we'll... Or I'll keep on the line. I'll just hit me one second. Mr. Mars? Yep. Got me now? Nothing. Let's see. Hello? Anything now? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, we're, we're good? Yeah, yeah, we're totally good. Um, so what, what happened? That was weird. I have no idea. Um, <laughs> All right, well, let's not jinx it then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's see. I have, let me see if I have the recorder going. Start recording. Okay, cool. It's going. Awesome. So uh, you've been all right today? Uh, yeah, a little, you know, a little warmer than I would like it to be, but them's the breaks. Oh, dude, yeah, I'm, I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. So, oh, um, yeah, yeah. So just, just a little warm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, I think the heat index was like 101. Ugh. So, um, it, yeah, you, you just sweat going out to get the mail. It's awful. Um, I, I went out and played nine holes of golf this this morning when it was a little cooler, <laughs> and it was, you know, man. By the time we got to like seventh hole, I was like, man, I've had enough of this shit. Oh yeah, yeah, dude, I, I. I could not do that here. I don't know how it is. You're in upstate New York, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it was probably uh, probably by the time I got on the course, it was like, you know, 80. But then, you know, then it started cooking a little bit more. So we were probably 85, 88 by the time we were we were really into it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, just, just a little much. I wanted to come home and, you know, take a nap for the rest of the day. But duty called. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, not your duty. I, you know, I got a bunch of shit to write, so. I hear you. Man, you, you stay busy. Uh, well, that's that's the goal, obviously. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go ahead and just record the intro, and sure. then we'll go from there. Um, yep. But I always kind of like to talk to you guys but first before you know we get into anything, so I can kind of let you know I'm not a, a weirdo or something. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, no worries. <laughs> 